Okay, and it is now time for Evidence-Based Radio. And tonight we have a very special show. We have a guest in studio, uh, Professor Sam Redman. And so just to start off, I'm going to read his blurb. Um, So Professor Sam Redman specializes in 19th and 20th century U.S. history with a focus on culture and ideas. He received his B.A. in anthropology and history from the University of Minnesota Morris and an M.A. and Ph.D. in American history since 1607 at the University of California, Berkeley. At Berkeley, Redmond completed dozens of oral history interviews on a wide variety of subjects. He served as lead interviewer for the Rosie the Riveter World War II Homefront Oral History Project and the Japanese American Confinement Sites Oral History Project, both in collaboration with the National Park Service. Working with a team in California, he launched a project documenting the oral history of the San Francisco-Oakland Bay Bridge, resulting in the completion of over a dozen new interviews with men and women who worked on the bridge. At UMass, he is the organizer of the Oral History Lab, an initiative to bring together students, scholars, and communities to improve oral history projects. And before graduate school, he worked in several museums, including the Field Museum of Natural History, the Colorado Museum, Hist- the Colorado History Museum, and the Science Museum of Minnesota. He is the author of Historical Research in Archives, a Practical Guide, which was published by the American Historical Association and distributed by Oxford University Press. And <laughs> his first book, Bone Rooms, From Scientific Racism to Human Pre- Prehistory in Museums, was published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Bone Rooms was named a choice top 25 outstanding academic title for 2016. Nature named the book a top 20 book for 2016. And Smithsonian Magazine included the book in their list of top history books of 2016. So we're very excited to have him here tonight. I'm thrilled and honored to be here. (laughs) Okay, so why don't we start with the obvious question, which is... How did you get where you are now? Great. So uh, I am fr- uh, was raised in a small town in Minnesota uh, called Red Wing, Minnesota, in southern Minnesota on the Mississippi River, and was fortunate to, to go to high school there. And uh, it, it happens to be situated right next to a, a Native American reservation. So very early on in my education, I encountered Native American people and, and learned about them and became friends and friendly with folks who were happened to be Native American. And, and that sort of was germinated pretty early on for me. Then when I went to college, I started having professors who were Native American and giving me different perspectives on issues about culture and history. So that started to, to really grow fairly early on. And then I did an internship at the Field Museum of Natural History, where I first encountered the problem and the promise of human remains in museums and museum collections. After that, I did an internship where I played a very small role in a really large, in fact, the largest repatriation to date and return and reburial of human remains uh, to an important site, a National Park Service site called Mesa Verde in Colorado at the Four Corners. And man, that all of that collectively was really sitting in my brain and sitting in my consciousness. So later when I went to graduate school, I, I circled back around to this topic and realized that I needed to wrestle with it. So 
here you have before you uh, now the result of that, my first book, Bone Rooms. Excellent. Um, so do you want to give sort of the executive summary of it just so that we can then start talking about it? Sure. Great. So Bone Rooms uh, is about the history of collecting and exhibiting human remains in the 19th and 20th century United States. So story that's fairly well known in, in the scholarship about this topic is that there was a, a, a famous uh, American man named Samuel George Morton who collected during his lifetime about 400 skulls. And he publishes this very famous book called Crania Americana. And it leads a lot of people to believe that you could learn a tremendous about, uh, amount about people and, and their abilities from their skulls, the size and shape of their skulls. And he argues that there are subtle differences between different skulls that you might find, sometimes not so subtle, differences, but uh, uh, different skulls from people around the world. But that, to me, doesn't really answer the question of why an institution like the Smithsonian has today 30,000 sets of human remains. There are over half a million sets of human remains, half a million sets of human remains in museums across the United States that we know about. And there are another half a million sets of human remains in museums in Europe. So it just, it, it seemed to me this amazing and complicated but huge question, why? Why did these things get here? What, what purpose were they intend to serve? And did they accomplish those aims? And, and if not, or if so, what, what do we do with them now? Uh, so that, that really germinated the, the start of this book and, and launched it. Uh, and now, so this book tells the story between about the Civil War and World War II of how those uh, skeletons came to be at the places like the Smithsonian. And what I love about the book is how relevant it is to the things that we're dealing with today. Um, so for instance, at the beginning of the book, one of the things that they talk about why they're collecting these bones is because these Native Americans are vanishing. And so we have this same conversation today where a lot of Native people are saying, um, we're still here. Can you ask us the questions about ourselves? Because we're still here. <laughs> Absolutely. There's this overwhelming sentiment in uh, this era. It starts certainly earlier as an idea, but by the time it starts gaining momentum in the late 19th century, there's really this concept um, and if you look at census data, there's some reason, you know, to, 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 to believe that, they're, they're, uh, that, that people were onto something. There's, because of disease, because of systematic uh, uh, massacres, because of many other things that Native Americans faced, there was a declining number of them in real terms. But they were not, in fact, as you say, vanishing the way people thought they were in this era. Uh, but they went to really extreme lengths to document everything that they could, the sort of notion of salvage anthropology in the late 19th and early 20th century. And one of the main characters in the book is a Czech-American anthropologist who's hired by the Smithsonian when they get their major collection of skeletons uh, together named Alice Erdlichka. And Erdlichka argues in a letter that I found in the archives, if it's as important to document these vanishing languages and uh, cultures, then it's important to, to document their bones and their bodies, because that's going to be the most stable thing about them into eternity. So um, really that historical idea, that, that sentiment and in that moment impacts very really the trajectory of these collections and what we're what we're left with today. So I, I think it's a tremendously complicated but fascinating story. Yeah, and one of the things that I sort of keyed into at the beginning is a sort of connection to 
the opening of the West and to manifest destiny. Because what I always think about, because I'm more familiar, obviously, with New England, uh, you know, Native history and um, your colonization and things like that, where um, I always think of how when people got here, they talk about how, well, clearly it was God's providence mm. that we should be here because, oh, look, there are all of these fields that have already been cleared for us. And there's all this beautiful land. And it's just there's no understanding that there used to be people there who have died from contact with people who had contact with Europeans you know, through trade routes and things like that. And so they were already gone when people got here. And so sure, there were still people here, but there were less people here than would have been before they got here. Without a doubt. And it's so it was so fascinating to me. What, I, what I'm really interested in is how ideas like that translate into or push people into action. To, to taking concrete action. Because in my view, it's one thing to sort of have this idea or attitude, and then it's another real thing to, 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 to take that land or to have an idea about how Native Americans should become farmers and then to translate in that to something like the Dawes Act that actually has this very real impact on Native people and how they live their lives. Um, and similarly with, with bone collecting, how does one translate these ideas about human difference and science into uh, uh, seeing a funeral pyre, seeing a Native American buried in a tree, not buried rather, but placed up into this toward the sky on a wooden funeral pyre? And how do you, where you know, Native people might conceptualize that as a way to go back into nature, how do you then see that as a Euro-American and think, no, you know what, that belongs in a museum? Um, and to me, the answer was actually really varied and diverse. And that's one of the things that I try to argue in this book is that it's, it is in part a story about science and it's a part a story about colonialism. But what else is remarkable about the story is how diverse the number of players are and outcomes um, in terms of uh, bone collecting. It becomes this incredibly, uh, I don't want to call it popular, not popular exactly, but this incredibly... Um, a common pastime in the United States that is really in some ways strange uh, to us today. Well, I think it's, it seems to me it's one of those sorts of crazes that people have. So, um, you know, there was the tulip craze, and then there was the mummy craze. And then once, I think it's really interesting how basically people all of a sudden, when we moved into the West, and we found these ruins, that suddenly people were like, oh, wait, the Americas do have history. And um, I think one of the funny things that I thought about was there's a um, there used to be a um, joke that um, a comedian who's Eddie Izzard used to say, you know, I'm from Europe where the history is. And of course, it's a funny joke, but people really kind of had that for feeling that the Americas were this, you know, sort of Eden where people were living these primitive lives. And then suddenly they realize, oh, wait, these people were actually had some sort of civilization. And I think that the the switch there is really fascinating. Absolutely. And to me, one of the things that I tried to argue in this book or find uh, in this work that to me was so fascinating is that there's a key turning point in American history. And I argue that it's the 1906 American Antiquities Act, the sort of, oh my gosh, moment where people have this realization, as you're talking about, suddenly where they come across these magnificent ruins in the American West. 
And uh, there are these incredible letters that people write back to the East saying, people are just walking all over these things. They're destroying them. And we need to view them as a resource. And they start conceptualizing it in different ways than they did before in terms of a sort of shared North American heritage that is really foreign to the idea about difference between uh, 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 native people and the primitivism, as you were saying, uh, the, of that's perceived to be amongst native people. So that's a really interesting shift and change. And what was surprising to me was that in early drafts of the 1906 American Antiquities Act, remains, as in human remains, are specifically named. But in later drafts, in the ultimate legislation that's that's taken out, uh, antiquities is sort of the language that's utilized, which still falls presumably in that era, uh, including some of these rare human remains that might be discovered, or mummies that might be discovered in the American West. But it was fascinating to me to find that human remains were actually a really important part of that conversation that, frankly, allows us to have the National Park Service today. Right. And I thought that was really interesting, the uh, sort of connection between how that act ends up leading into the National Park Service, because the president um, was like, oh, well, that's cool. But then we can also preserve all these beautiful lands. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, the it's it's fascinating to, to look at this, the 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 um, the problems and promise in some sense, too, of government intervention and government regulation into these certain problems. I mean, in a very real, clear sense, this became a problem. The trafficking of human remains and um, the the sale of human remains on the private market was very clearly becoming a problem and an issue, and the, just the destruction of uh, antiquities. But the response was also uh, curious in a way in that it put these things into federal regulation and put a, a, a tremendous, if not all of the control, into the hands of the archaeologists, into the hands of the scientists, into the hands of the museums, and not into the hands of Native people. So presumably a little later we'll get to where the story changes in terms of the balance. But for that moment around 1906, my goodness, the scientists are really starting to hold a lot of control uh, supported by the federal government. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Of course, one of the things I think about is the fact that we still struggle to this day with black markets and antiquity smuggling and, um, you know, things like that. And so it's really interesting to read about when they first started to really grapple with that. Yeah, um, and then how, you know, for, for the scholars and scientists and amateurs that are, and, and traffickers that are looters, let's call them, we'll just name them in some sense, looters, uh, who are dealing and trafficking in these remains, trying to determine what the value of a skeleton is. And trying to determine then, it used to be much more common for museums to trade objects. Now, uh, starting in the middle of the 20th century, it becomes more common for them to do loans, like we see today. And, you know, major exhibitions where things tour, things like that. But it used to be common, more common for them to just outright trade things. But what is the value of a human skeleton? Um, what is the value of six human skeletons? How does it compare to the value of something from ancient Egypt or a kayak that someone made, which sounds absolutely ludicrous for us to think about, and in fact, unethical and problematic. But uh, it was very really how people thought about it in, in uh, the, the era in which I am exploring in this book. So one of the sort of key times that I think of in the book is um, the Chicago World's Fair. 
So, um, you know, I had already known a fair amount about it. And I think it's really interesting where you have displays of human remains next to displays of actual Native Americans being put into these sort of living dioramas that are questionably uh, set up to be, you know, indicative of how they used to live, but are very questionable. And one of the other things that I thought about um, was the connection to with um, Carl Akeley and his, this is one of the first big um, displays of his taxidermy. And so, and that's a really different thing because he's creating a whole different um, way of dealing with animal remains. And so before taxidermy was kind of, you know, you everyone's seen bad taxidermy on the internet. Um, but Carl Akeley really turned it into an art. And, you know, there's a whole other side of Carl Akeley being this very interesting figure who, you know, there's the uh, there's the story about him and the panther and uh, and all of these things, or the cheetah, I should say. Um, but I just thought it was really interesting, this confluence of all of these things. Yeah, World's Fairs are just, uh, if you're a cultural historian, World's Fairs and entering into their archives and history and uh, using them to think about uh, American culture is sort of like a kid entering a candy shop. I mean, as you said, it's sort of, it is this incredible and sometimes strange and marvelous mashup of different cultural phenomenon and pushback against certain cultural phenomenon that are happening in that moment. Um, And people are thinking about exhibitions and how to exhibit stuff in a, a really key important sort of way that influences later museum practice, in part because some of those curators continue working for museums, and in part just because a lot of Americans see things there for the first time and sort of have these associations with them. But certainly in in the course of writing this book, I discovered that uh, displaying human remains and World's Fairs often went hand in hand in Chicago, in St. Louis, and notably for me on uh, in a 1915 sort of lesser known fair that uh, actually lost out in the challenge of being a World's Fair, but said, we're going to take our ball and go home anyway, and held their own major fair in San Diego, California in 1915. Yeah. So I do want to shift because I definitely don't want to not talk about this because I think this is the sort of buried lead in this entire book, which is, of course, we do have to talk about the racism issue and how it's very interesting that for the first portion of this time period where they're collecting bones, they're very obvious stated goal over and over and over again is talking about how to divide the races and how to find ways to very um, scientifically say these these sets of people are one race versus another and how they are using those bones. Absolutely. So um, from a perspective of a historian, naturally, I don't think as a historian you can divorce yourself, even if you're trying to be objective, from who you are as a person and as an individual. So I'll just, let's lay it out there. A number one, I consider myself today an anti-racist, and I hate racism in all of its forms. Um, But I also understand that it has this incredibly real impact on American society, and it shaped uh, science, and it shaped how people have responded to those things. 
I'm also sympathetic with some basic fundamental ideas that these people were interested in in this era. So for instance, why do people that are from different parts of the world sort of look different? You know, and why, you know, do uh, people seem to have different sizes and shapes of their bones and bodies sometimes? Um, that's, I think, a reasonable and fair question. And in fact, um, some of the science that has been uh, 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 a result from these uh, bone collections has resulted in very real science and, and discoveries about medical history and um, uh, epidemiology and, and, and the history of disease and uh, responses to that and, and all of those very worthy things. But... There's a very big and monumental, in fact, uh, but here is that the the um, the racist ideologies and uh, scientific lens through which um, people were subtly and uh, uh, overtly influenced by their racism in the era. Uh, deeply marks and shapes how these collections are brought together, the justifications behind how they were dug out, of, you know, and why they were dug out of the ground. Um, and sometimes, you know, the, the, some of the pushback might be, well, let's historically contextualize the era and the, the ethics from the era. So I try to do that in this book, but I also try to point to moments in which people are very really expressing guilt and uh, aspects of remorse um, a very famous Franz Boas letter uh, that, that says, you know, when he's selling skulls for four to five dollars and he says, uh, this is a really this is really miserable work, but someone has to do it. What's the use? And, and that, you know, really in, in some remarkable way encapsulates a lot of the sentiment in this era that um, that in spite of some of these uh, ethical breaches that, that people knew that they were willing to take, they they were willing to do that because of uh, very passionate uh, and real thinking about race and difference in that in that era. Which, I, just to be clear, a lot of this now has been debunked. Um, it's, uh, uh, any uh, 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 the vast majority of uh, uh, you know credible scientists will tell you that um, that there is no real connection between race. And uh, fundamental abilities and things like intelligence or industriousness or anything like that. So these are ideas that have been debunked, but that very really shaped these collections that we're left with today. Yeah, and um, you know, even though they've been debunked, one of the things that we talked about before this show started was how we still have these very real issues where in some of these, in some of the early early um, sort of stories, they're trying to figure out. Could someone else other than the Native Americans who are here now have done these amazing things? And of course, I thought about immediately the new, uh, the nouveau version of that, which is ancient aliens and Oak Island trying to find, you know, the Viking origins of civilization in America and things like that. Absolutely. So one of the, so the there's sort of a, a crude way of saying of describing the work of a historian is that you uh, read dead people's mail. And unfortunately, it's it's actually sort of true. So um, I, uh, I was one of the first historians who've benefited tremendously. I just I cannot say enough about librarians and archivists. They are the unsung heroes of our field, and I just want to give a shout out. If there are any librarians and archivists uh, listening to this right now, I and many other historians love and uh, thank you so much for your work. But 
because uh, there had been a collection of about 80 feet of letters and other correspondence and publications, um, some of them letters written to Alice Erdlichka. And uh, as we've been describing, there's this movement across the West, farmers that are tilling up new fields in places like Wisconsin, Minnesota, Texas, all over, um, that are discovering strange remains and trying to make sense of them. But that also creates this market for hucksters and fraudsters and conspiracy theorists that will tell the local journalist something, they'll print it in the newspaper, and then it gets repeated and passed around. Um, there are also claims that there are different species of human ancestor that are discovered in North America uh, that they're wrestling with. And then also very real incidents, but um, uh, significant ones like the Piltdown hoax in England, where um, in my view, what was really interesting in studying for this, uh, 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 researching this book was uh, how American scientists were so desperate to learn more about the Piltdown man fossils that are purported to be found and how incredible uh, these were supposed to be, but they were locked up by uh, British scientists and British officials. And not until many years later was that hoax officially fully and truly debunked. So uh, debates and things like that as how they were read in America became really interesting to me in the course of researching and writing this book. Yeah, and I think um, one of the people who I always think about in that respect is, of course, P.T. Barnum. And so um, I read a great book about um, P.T. Barnum, and I'm not going to recall it right now, but it was about the Great Moon Hoax. And um, one of the things that Barnum did was that for a while he had this very elderly African-American woman who he was exhibiting as, um, I believe it was Washington's nursemaid or, you know, her... Or his uh, housekeeper or something, and she was supposed to be 130 years old. And so he would just have her sitting there because she was she was pretty old. She was probably maybe about 100. And people would pay money just to come and basically look at her. I know eventually you might like to get into medical museums. Yep. And the thing that was so interesting to me about the story of medical museums was that even as they're trying to sort of uh, consider opening their doors – they're constantly hand-wringing and worried that people are going to be just turned off, disgusted, weirded out, all of those sorts of things. And in fact, that just what you're describing, the P.T. Barnum phenomenon, uh, World's Fairs, there are in fact other instances and areas where people are encountering these types of remains. And of course, people in Vic the Victorian era uh, and uh, earlier eras had much different relationships with death than, than we tend to today. We tend to be much more separated from death with the modern funeral industry and, and modern medicine. Uh, so there, there are many key differences there, but in, in almost every incidence, uh, people are drawn to these exhibits and uh, they sort of uh, break expectations or smash, in some cases, records, long-held records uh, from these museums uh, uh, from interested people coming to, to pay money to see them. And that is where I want to go next, but um, we are going to take a break for a few minutes. And uh, so we're going to listen to a couple of PSAs and we'll be back and talk about medical museum. So hang on. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, 
but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Every day in the electronic media, people talk, or more likely yell, about politics. We do things differently. Our job is to talk about the things that we hope will be of interest to you without all the shouting and anger. We hope to provide facts and have reasonable discussions about the issues of the day. That is to disagree without being disagreeable. Join us every Friday at 7 p.m. for Civil Politics here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton or anytime online at civilpoliticsradio.wordpress.com. Forbes Library offers free access to computers, and now they are equipped with tools to make them easier to use if you are blind or have low vision. When you come into Forbes Library, you will find computers with JAWS screen reading and magnification software installed. Trained library staff are available to get you started. These services were brought to you with federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. Call 413-587-1012 to find out more. You work hard for your wages, so you need to know most workers should receive at least the federal minimum wage and hopefully more. Also, most workers should receive overtime if they work more than 40 hours in seven days. These are the laws for everyone, documented or not. Have questions about your wages? Call the U.S. Department of Labor Wage in Our Division. It's free and confidential. Call 1-866-487-9243. That's 1-866-4-US-WAGE. We can help. A message from the U.S. Department of Labor. Nerd Night NoHo is proud to support Valley Free Radio, where a monthly speaker series featuring experts from the community talking about art, culture, and science. You can find us at noho.nerdnight.com. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And again, we have Sam Redman, professor of history at UMass, and we are talking about his book, Bone Rooms. And so, yes, I definitely do want to talk about medical museums. And I was saying how um, one of my first real vacations, one of my only real vacations, was I went to Philadelphia. And one of the places, there were two places that I was really excited to go to, Eastern States and the Mütter Museum. Good choices. <laughs> wow, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, what an incredible place, an institution that in some ways feels like it's been hermetically sealed in time. Um, it is this incredible medical museum uh, from an era in which, so imagine an era in which uh, 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 publishing medical textbooks was far more expensive and less effective. So you, you didn't have these amazing like uh, color images or black and white images or you know, now, uh, if you're studying to be a physician, you could look at things in 3D. You could print things off on a 3D printer. So none of that. Um, so the medical museum becomes sort of like a proxy library of specimens. And um, you might see a frostbitten hand or uh, uh, a venereal disease that, 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 uh, that left a mark on someone or, or some other sort of uh, uh, ailment that impacted their uh, bones. Um, and what I became interested in was, well, how does this intersect with those questions that we're now talking about related to race and racism and ideas about human history, about ideas about human evolution? So if it's clear that these things were deeply shaping and impacting the collecting at natural history museums, how is the shaping and impacting collecting and ideas at medical museums like the Mutter Museum? Yeah, and I think that um, one of the interesting things, when I was there, for instance, they had an exhibition on shrunken heads, mm. and I thought that that was really interesting. Um, and they talk about, one of the things I think is interesting that kind of ties into this is the idea of how do you authenticate them? Because a lot of them are fake, and they were made by people to sell to basically unsuspecting Europeans and Americans. And, um, you know, I think there was a certain, a certain amount of that in the West as well, where people were kind of, you didn't necessarily know because there were people who were selling people things that weren't authentic either. It's a macabre thought to, to realize that um, as soon as there's a market for something, as soon as there's a market for human remains, there then suddenly becomes a black market for such uh, same thing, the same sort of thing, or uh, 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 a sort of shadow market in fakes and frauds. Um, so medical museums, what, an interesting example, an anecdote in the book that I unpack and, and describe is uh, the, the so-called Mutter American Giant. And that is the largest human skeleton that is on display anywhere in North America. And uh, incredibly, uh, to, to, in my view, reading through the uh, historical documentation, it was uh, acquired on the explicit uh, 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 condition that no questions be asked about its origin. So read historically, read from the context, like what, you know, more suggestion, what might, might one need to know that there's some grave robbing here or, or some uh, potential impropriety, uh, maybe not illegal in that era, depending on the state. And still to this day, people sometimes are shocked to find out that under certain circumstances in some of the 50 states, one can still legally buy human remains. So uh, this is an incredible thing, and it is still an active ongoing phenomenon and one that museums are still wrestling with uh, to this day. But um, this is a historical thing that I'm writing and talking about, but it's not an issue that's gone away. Yeah, I know that. Um, I, I remember there was a story at one point about how someone was trying to sell a skull on eBay and the idea of, you know, no, you can't do that. And that, you know, it wouldn't occur to people that, no, you cannot sell human remains on eBay. It's, it's incredible the, the degree to which this is, this is still happening. Um, 
and and uh, but I think when you look at some of those historic, like when you read those letters, the 19th century letters that uh, that I encountered in, in museum archives, where people describe why, and um, sometimes their justification is is strange by our account, but also um, uh, really telling. So, for instance. Um, one guy who says, you know, I sent you the rest of the skull or skeleton, but I saved the skull for another 10 years and it sat on my mantelpiece because she had such lovely teeth. Um, really incredible sort of eye-opening story, um, but one that again suggests that there were these different motivations uh, uh, pushing people to, to take part in this really uh, widespread practice. And um, now I think we should definitely wrap up um, with a discussion of what we're doing now, or at least what we're trying to do now. Sure. And so um, obviously there was passed in the in 1990, um, or before 1990, sorry, in the, it was in the 80s? So 1989 and 1990, yeah. um, in 89, there's the Native American, uh, the, the National Museum of American Indian Act that addresses some of the problems related to the federal government and the Smithsonian collections. And then in 1990, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, also known as NAGPRA by its acronym, uh, intends to address this problem on a national scale. So if you can demonstrate, um, and a, a big question becomes how to demonstrate or how you uh, would go about demonstrating, but if Native people could demonstrate that their ancestors or uh, sp uh, spiritually sacred objects were in the possession of museums uh, that received any federal funding, they could request their return. Um, and uh, there was, again, a lot of hand-wringing. If you go back and read newspapers from 1990, and I quote some of these in the, end, at the, in the epilogue of the book, um, some people were really worried that this was going to just empty out museums and this was going to be, this is the start of a slippery slope, uh, was uh, really the common rhetoric. And in fact, uh, it, it makes an impact. Uh, about 5,000 sets of human remains do go home from the Smithsonian Institution, for example, um, but not nearly emptying out uh, the human remains collections. But um, incidences where there can, at the opening, in the opening pages of the book, I describe an incident where uh, a militiaman uh, kill, uh, uh, brutally kill uh, a young Native American man uh, simply for being off of uh, 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 reservation territories. Um, <clears throat> so it, it's this really tragic and, and ugly episode, but that should give you an indication of so, how some of these were collected and how some of them were brought to museums. So of course that should go back for reburial and people should have um, an opportunity to, uh, to recognize the humanity of that in their own uh, religious way. Uh, we have religious freedom as a, as a basic pillar of this country. Uh, and, and that should be recognized and, and valued in that way. I recognize, though, there's a lot of pushback to that opinion, not only amongst the scientific community, but also of people who, who support the work of scientists to, to, to do different types of research. Yeah, but I think that one of the things that I found most compelling about the book is the sheer volume. And so I think that a lot of these, you know, remains that could go back to Native peoples are literally just sitting in boxes in, um, you know, various museums. And I will admit, I'm a great booster of the idea that you can have an entire career based on things that are in boxes mm -hmm. in museums. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to this sort of thing, I think that, you know, the argument 
about how, oh, well, then we'll never be able to study these people. It kind of falls flat when you think about just the sheer volume and, of course, some of the terrible, unethical ways that these were collected. Um, But I did want to read this uh, comment. You had uh, done an article about um, Kenwick Man, which, of course, um, he was finally laid to rest just a few weeks ago after a 20-year battle over who should own him um in some respects even though that's a terrible way of putting it um but so you had put you had written an article at the conversation and i really i just i want to read this comment so that you can then respond to it they tell you never to read the comments but here we go it's not that bad (laughs) no go for it great It's hard not to conclude that the real reason behind opposition to research by some, by no means all, Native American groups is fear that the science will debunk their mythology if their know-nothing approach were generalized globally, paleoanthropology would cease to exist. Think of the finds that would be deliberately lost. Memory hold as in 1984. Otsi. Lindau Man, all of the Bog people, Grabal, Toland, there are many others from South America, Africa, Asia. We need to recognize the paranoid, know-nothing attitudes as belonging in the same camp as fanatical evangelical opposition to research on climate or evolution. The Native American groups, again by no means all, who viciously oppose research are doing incalculable damage to science in the United States. So this is a, a, first of all, I want to just say that I appreciate the fact that people have taken the book seriously and wrestle with these arguments. And I hope my my main goal is that they think and take seriously these problems and start to think about these issues, because I, I would argue that many people are pretty unaware that these issues even exist. Okay. So then responding to the, the, the reader's comments, uh, I will say there are, there are, well over 500 different tribes across uh, the, what is now the United States. So there are many, many different attitudes and responses towards this problem, um, including some Native people that have fundamental attitudes towards death and the dead and, and burial that they want no part of repatriation or any part of this. They want distance from, from those remains. And that is fine. Others will, in fact, want legal ownership back because that is... Um, uh, here encounter in many respects, although the, the person does say not all, but um, very really there are native tribes who want ownership back. So they'll, they'll legally demand ownership back, but leave the remains available to science. Or um, there are examples of uh, uh, native tissues, native samples, uh, native bones that are under lock and key where there are, two, there are two keys and one goes to scientists at the local university and one goes to elders. And in order to do scientific research project on those remains, there needs to be some agreement between the two parties. Um, so it's not as though I or I think many people at all are making a blanket argument against science. In fact, uh, the argument is that many of these remains were uh, acquired in an unethical manner, have not been studied or have been completely understudied, and um, in fact cause great pain to Native peoples who um, uh, see them as, as critically important to their religion. Uh, to their spirituality and their fundamental worldview. So yes, we have freedom of speech. We have freedom. Uh, I, I hope that we have 
free thought for science and that people can engage in those questions. But I don't think that that overrides or should, you know, uh, somehow steamroll uh, the religious freedom and religious considerations we have in this country. But it's a really fascinating and, and uh, challenging uh, concern that, that people bring forward. Yeah, and I think that um, one of the other things, too, is that despite the fact that NAGPRA does a lot, there's a lot that it doesn't do as well. So, for instance, one of the things that I find would be the most frustrating if I was a Native person is the fact that you have to be a federally recognized tribe in order to even make a claim. Without a doubt, that's got to be one of the key problems with NAGPRA, as it's laid out right now, is just as you're saying that it, it requires that federal recognition. Um, moreover, it does require from sort of scientific bodies, from scientific interests, from museums who arguably have a vested interest in maintaining these collections that they've spent a century building up and maintaining um, to it, there's a, a sort of what some Native people see as a loophole. Um, of culturally unidentifiable material. So if you can claim, as was the case with Kennewick Man, you know, no, we need to hit the pause button on this. We can't identify who the ancestors are. And there were some really rational scientific arguments to be made about population migration and movement. How do we know that these people and their sacred traditions are the same sacred traditions of Kennewick Man? Whereas the Native people will say, no, we've been here since the beginning of time. So this is just a fundamental disagreement in some ways. Um, but I don't think it's as simple as like science versus religion, because uh, there are, in fact, many Native peoples who are willing to compromise and uh, find different ways forward. But they also don't like the unfair and unethical treatment that sometimes, in fact, museums have been guilty of engaging with. I think a lot of museums now and a lot of museum professionals and scientists are doing everything that they think they can to work against and provide some sort of partial redress to these, uh, these problems. But they, I think many of them are really recognizing that problematic history too. So again, it can't just simply be viewed as a sort of simple science and religion dichotomy battle there. But it's a, it's a definitely there's some tensions there, no doubt. Well, there was an um, I don't know if it was in your book, if it was a conversation we had had um, at the conference that we were both at a couple of weeks ago. But there was a great um, anecdote that someone said that I thought was just wonderfully apt about this. It's not even about the religion. So basically, some scientists were doing um, research on the diet of people. And, you know, they were presenting their information to the tribe. And, you know, someone gets up and says, I could have told you we ate corn. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and so some Native people will sort of shrug and say, like, what has been the point of this? That you've had these remains for 100 years on the shelf, and you've, in fact, done very few successful studies or very few consequential studies that impact us and our lives. And meanwhile, we're facing poverty. And uh, maybe part of the reason why that is is because our ancestors, our warriors, are never got a proper burial. They're sitting on a shelf in Chicago. So there, you know, it's I, I really am sympathetic to that point of view. Um, on the other hand, having been raised in sort of this Western tradition, having been educated by scientists, I also see a benefit, and I'm, I'm, I'm interested in history. I think lots of people are, and we want to know where we come from and who we are as, as people. And again, those fundamental questions about our bodies, ourselves, who we are, 
Uh, those are perfectly reasonable questions, but I caution us that we have to go about answering them in an ethical manner and that we need to do so as often as possible in collaboration and in close contact with the ancestors of people that, that we're trying to study and better understand. Yeah, um, just to wrap up this talk, and then I want to give you a few minutes to talk about whatever you'd like to talk about the most um, instead of asking questions. But one of the things that struck me as I was reading some of the um, minutes of one of the um, congressional hearings, and it was, I think, a senator from Hawaii who was a native Hawaiian. And he was saying, basically, the tradition in Hawaii is that nobody knows where people are buried. We have one of the most secretive burial practices of any, you know, civilization, of any culture. And to have those bones sitting on a shelf, even though it doesn't mean anything to you, to us, that's a deep cultural wound. And I thought that was a really persuasive, <laughs> like, that's hard to argue with. It, I mean, it's, <clears throat> it's, it's uh, really fortunate that now I think we're far enough in this debate and we've had enough voices come forward I still think there are there are many more voices that that could come forward, and I hope um, Native people continue to have uh, a, 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 a broader and more consequential voice in the conversation. Because, like I say, it's been dominated by scientists and museums for the past century, uh, and heavily influenced by colonialism and, and problematic sorts of ways. But also, um, there there could be benefit coming from it that. Um, people can rediscover and revitalize cultural traditions through these collaborations. Uh, they can learn new things about their ancestors. Uh, so it, it can be really productive and, and, in a sense, present opportunities for healing. And potentially museums themselves can be the key spaces where some of this can, can in fact, happen. Yeah, and I think it might be actually interesting to try and bring it full circle where if you can have collaborations with Native people, instead of displaying them, have actual collaborations with them. I think that might be lovely. Um, and to really actually just start to have that conversation instead of um, the more colonial one. Um, but like I said, we've got five minutes left. So I wanted to give you an open-ended few minutes to, if there's a story from the book that you haven't gotten a chance to talk to or something completely different, I just wanted to give you a few minutes. Sure. Well, <clears throat> yeah, let me just say two things. One um, <clears throat> is that it's been interesting to me to see the book uh, in, in one short week, uh, the, Wall uh, it, the Washington Post mistakenly described me as a scientist. <laughs> and in fact, I'm a historian. <laughs> I'm a humanist. And then um, the very next week, there was a letter to the editor that said, well, clearly in the Wall Street Journal saying, another like big national newspaper saying, well, clearly Professor Redmond's anti-science. <laughs> Um, so maybe on the one hand, I'm doing something right in that people, you know, can't quite tell uh, because I didn't really want to interject myself and my own story into uh, this really major consequential, uh, consequential thing. But of course, I am coming to it with a perspective and I'm glad we got into some of that today. Um, <clears throat> and I'll just sort of try to tie it back around with uh, the opening pages of the second chapter, there's a woman who's described as collecting bones feverishly in response to a flood. And the riverbank, the flooding riverbank, it washes away some of the uh, side of the riverbank and it exposes some long forgotten relics and human remains. And she implores some local people to help her gather them up. Um, <clears throat> this is a woman named Frances Densmore. 
And she happens to have been from my hometown in Minnesota, Red Wing, Minnesota. And so I couldn't help but um, sort of see that connection and, and think about who we are and uh, uh, who, what it is, what it means to be a white American and have this legacy uh, of science that um, I think the vast majority of people who know Frances Densmore know her as being the founder of ethnomusicology. She's one of the heroes of uh, American science in that she goes around and records these songs before they're vanishing, and, and she's sort of presented with this, uh, with this banner. But she's also, I want to be clear, deeply influenced by this colonial, often paternalistic, science-oriented mentality where uh, desperately trying to collect human remains and send them to the Smithsonian Institution was seen as the right course of action. So this made me search my own history and soul and, and where I stand on these issues. Um, so that, I think, it, it, you know, is poured out into the book. And I hope people wrestle with these issues on their own and, and think about, you know, what do they really think about science and society and religion and how these things should inter intersect. Yeah, I think that is definitely very cool. And I think that what's even more interesting, um, there's another bit about that that I picked up on is the fact that um, even as she was trying to do this, she was facing a real uphill battle, getting the supplies that she needed and things like that, because people didn't really think that this was an important thing that she was doing. Absolutely. And and it, it was it's totally a story of uh, Densmore's story is one of of sexism, deep sexism. Um, but also she's, she's heavily influenced by the science of her era. Um, but yeah, again, I wanted to sort of demonstrate, and there are three or four other stories in here that I think will be the first time, even scholars, when they're reading this, they'll, I think in some cases, they'll say, holy smokes, you know, there are letters here that show very clearly that, that these people too participated in this widespread practice of collecting human remains. Yeah. And I think that, um, what I would recommend is for people to read the book. Um, Thank you. You can get it at Amherst Books. So if you want to support local, uh, a local bookstore, I tried to get it at the Barnes & Noble, but they didn't have it just because I had been at the mall. And then I was like, wait a second, I can support local Absolutely. bookstore and get a copy. And so... And um, while I'm not done with it, I am enjoying it very thoroughly. Great. And so I just want to thank you so much for coming on tonight and sharing about your book and about your perspectives. And I think it's a great um, thing to talk about these sorts of things and get them out there. Thanks again. I know this is a difficult, challenging issue, a, a dark chapter in our history in many respects, but it's a really important one for us to wrestle with and think about. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to come here and think about science and, and, and uh, ethics and, and all of the challenges related to those things with you. Great. All right. So hang on for just a few moments and we will be back with civil politics.